Today on Superheroes of Science, we're excited to welcome Matthew Ward, Research Assistant Professor of Biomedical Engineering at Purdue University and Adjunct Assistant Professor of Clinical Medicine at the IU School of Medicine. So welcome, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for having me. But for background-wise, what's some of the projects that uh, you do? Um, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, yeah, I do tend to work um, with a lot of different investigators and it really has to do with the interdisciplinary nature of the work that I do. I specifically um, work with uh, medical devices called neurostimulators. And these devices are um, um, meant to stimulate parts of your nervous system like your nerves, which allow your brain and your body to communicate. And the intent is to try to replace a lost function or to uh, remove basically bad signaling that can cause um, symptoms of disease. Um, and so typically that involves, you know, working with electrical engineers that, that make the devices and involves working with, you know, traditional neuroscientists who can go down into, you know, and trace these neural pathways and characterize them for you. And um, um, it involves working with material scientists to be able to develop the right materials to interface with this nervous system. And then um, what I try to do is I actually kind of tie all this together because I'd like to understand how to communicate with the nervous system. And so that requires a knowledge of, you know, what nerve do you stimulate? What pathways in this nerve do you stimulate? What are the effects? Um, what are the differences you see across individuals? Um, um, and, um, you know, is there uh, any predictability, you know, in the way that neurostimulation is currently given, um, delivered? Um, and so it, so it really involves like, you know, a combination of all these things. And typically these devices have been implemented in a very um, brute force kind of a way where we're looking at, um, you apply electricity and shock a nerve and you kind of see what happens. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a basic thing. We shock things and see what happens, but you can only shock something so many times and have nothing good happen for them to say, no, you know, no thank you. And um, even, the, you know, the most common neurostimulation treatments available today are even, you know, only about 50% effective in 50% of the people. So it's not that great. And so what I try to use is try to do is use information and well-designed um, what we call neural interfaces to close the loop on these neurostimulators so that these neurostimulators can self-regulate themselves based on what it's sensing from the patient's physiology, um, what the patient is actually describing to the stimulator as to how the treatment's working for them. And also, um, taking information from the doctor as, you know, um, to be able to essentially get a comprehensive personalized treatment for the individual patient. So I, you know, so that's why I kind of intersect with a lot of different disciplines and that's why, um, anyways, that's where I kind of love to work at. And you know, I love to work at the neural interface. I think it's fascinating that we can do anything with the nervous system, communicate, communicate any kind of type of meaningful message to the nervous system and actually use it to help treat disease just like a drug might do. Um, and so I do. This sounds incredibly complicated. And I think especially when you talk about trying to determine which nerves, I think, oh my gosh, where would you even begin? What sorts of body systems are involved with, I would think, like, for, like, is it introduced in a pill form? And then how does that get you? What, how do you get that information? Or what all, I guess, let's start with body systems. What body systems are, are you primarily working with? Um, that's a great question. I, I think maybe now's a good time to insert some in visual aids. <laughs> um, so let me um, share the screen here. Right, and um, I think you might have seen that, you know, seen this screen flash. And so maybe I'll just start here just to kind of shut the preface. I'm not answering your question, but eventually I will, I promise. <laughs> so, yeah, my whole interest in this field started with, um, 
you know, trying to understand, um, you know, is there a better way than drugs? Because in many cases, you know, for um, drugs are really effective. Antibiotics have been really effective for us. But when it comes to like opiates for pain, it be it's become, you know, it's very effective, but it's also very addictive and it's become a huge issue for our society. And so this slide is meant to represent that. I think it's, you know, pain pills, yes, they relieve the pain, but what else do they cause? And what kinds of other problems do they create? Um, but to give you an idea, you know, 100 people I learned a week die from drug overdose deaths, and two thirds of those are from opiates. Oh. All right, so that's just in the US alone. And so, for every one of these people that die, there's 10 treatment admissions for abuse, 32 emergency department visits for misuse or abuse, 130 people abuse or are dependent, and there's 825 non medical users of opiates. So, that's uh, a staggering statistic. And, um, you know, neuromodulation, neurostimulation, which I was studying at the time. Um, has been applied and specifically in spinal cord stimulation to help relieve pain, but even that is still not, you know, universally applied and applicable. It's not as effective as painkillers and it requires surgery. Um, but I thought, you know, I started looking to the issues and, you know, realized that, you know, it might just be because they're not stimulating the right nerve pathway in that person or they're not properly tuning the stimulus to that particular person. And so there's been a number of programs in the last 10 years that have been specifically um, aimed at trying to understand how to stimulate the nervous system, where to stimulate, when to stimulate it. And um, this is a representation from a DARPA um, um, program that I think nicely um, describes the basics of what we're trying to accomplish, um, where we kind of measure something from the physiology. And it could be anywhere in the body, to start answering your question. It could be in the stomach, it could be in the lungs, it could be the heart, it could be um, some pain that's coming from your left you know, pinky toe, it could be any of these conditions. Um, and what we try to do is we try to understand which nerves regulate, you know, the sensations that come from these, these areas and um, is it surgically accessible? And um, when we get there, what are the other effects that you might not, you know, want or expect that might come, or come as a result of stimulation? And so a lot of where I focus is on what we call the autonomic nervous system. It's a field called autonomic neuromodulation. And that that really, um, for today's purposes, um, encompasses a stimulating nerve called the vagus nerve. It's the 10th cranial nerve. And if you can feel your carotid pulse, that the nerve runs along that same carotid artery. And it regulates everything from your, you know, basically your neck down to your transverse colon. And so it has an enormous influence on our body. And when things go awry, typically you can sense that through the vagus nerve. And typically you can actually restore that function, we believe in most cases, through the vagus nerve. But that requires an understanding of what that nerve is composed of and um, what the regulatory functions are of that nerve. <clears throat> and so in a sense, you know, it involves all kinds of systems. And, but the, you know, for what I do, which is peripheral neuromodulation or autonomic neuromodulation, it requires you know, some kind of conduit that connects the brain to the organ or tissue that you're trying to treat. Um, again, the vagus nerve is, I don't know what happened there, I'm sorry. Um, the vagus nerve is the most important to what we study. And so the reason I put this little image here is um, just to kind of give you an analogy. So a nerve is essentially, it's like a bundle of different wires, but each wire has a, its own little shape and size and it, it can conduct information at different speeds. And this, it typically conducts information tied to a particular function. And so when you can kind of, if you took this nerve, which is the big kind of dense web of wires and kind of unrolled it, it might look a lot like a harp. It's a very delicate, delicate instrument. And what the brain normally does with, you know, when it communicates with the body and vice versa is it sends 
you know, signals or plays all these different strings at different times. And that is interpreted as some kind of physiological message by let's say the stomach or the stomach might tell the brain, Hey, I'm hungry. It's going to be, it's going to send up some kind of pattern or some kind of melody so that the brain can understand what the stomach's trying to say. We don't understand any of this right now. And so really what we're doing is we're just putting a wire up across all of these nerves and we're stimulating the heck out of all of them. And in 50% of the cases, we kind of see some of the good effects flush out. But in almost all those cases, you also see that, oh, we've actually, you know, stimulated some pathways that um, might change the way the heart functions, or we stimulate some pathways that cause indigestion. And these are all side effects that right now are unpredictable and uncontrollable. And it's specifically, um, you know, it's a, it's a big problem that plagues vagus nerve stimulation. And so what we're trying to do is, you know, we're trying to use machine learning, um, artificial intelligence to try to figure out what do each of these strings, you know, mean? What, where do they connect to? You know, does it connect to the stomach, the heart, the lungs? And when, the, when it's working normally for this function, what melody is being played? And so we want to learn that because we want to understand, um, well, what things about what pathway is sending this information between the brain and let's say the stomach again for the uh, popular example here. And we want to understand um, uh, when, that ha when that's happening, so the context. So, you know, when I'm feeling hungry, my brain is sending some command to basically let my stomach start to prepare for the you know, ingestion of food. Um, and we want to understand how, how to do this in a healthy template through machine learning AI so that we can replicate this when we come down to margin, you know, artificially modulating that same pathway in people who have, who basically that, whose function is gone or um, not working properly. Um, so in a sense, you know, Mario here is bashing at it and that's kind of where we are right now. And we're trying to make it better. We want to, we want to play, you know, play it like a harp, you know, mm -hmm. kind of respect the instrument. Uh, how does machine learning fit in with that? It, it's, I mean, how does that, I, 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 I kind of get okay with the nerves or different nerves responsible for different things. You're trying to figure out exactly how they work. And, and the first thing I think of is like, um, I mean, like acupuncture and, and B Kung Fu, on Kung Fu movies. Um, <laughs> where, where they can get certain nerves and make pause and stuff. That's the first thing that comes to mind. But uh, you're going way beyond that into machine learning for it. And how does that work? How does that play into it? Yeah, so it played in, in, a, um, in many aspects. And I guess this would be one perfect example of, you know, first to kind of visually show you the complexity of this nerve. This is actually a vagus nerve from a human subject, uh, organ donor. And um, you can only see, these are called axons. This is kind of, if you took a nerve, it's a long tube and you kind of cut it in half and you looked in the inside. Each one of these little circles here is a nerve pathway. It's an axon and there's myelin. So these, every one of these things is a line of communication or if you wrap, unravel them all, it might be a string on that harp that I showed you in the previous slide. Okay, so, um, so you can see there is, you know, we're only seeing this now. There's roughly, there's some kind of organization by size. So there's some bigger ones here. There's kind of a cluster of medium sized ones here. Some cases there's these little ones here and these are actually the smallest ones. Um, and they're roughly organized by size and function. And, but the problem is this is so complicated that as humans, we can only really experience this as maybe a beautiful image or a very complex image. And we need to be able to get this information out of here. So that, so the first step, you know, for one area where machine learning is kind of um, hot right now, I guess maybe deep learning would be more appropriate, is in automatically characterizing or basically um, reducing the dimensionality of this data set, meaning can we identify where all these axons are? What size are they? How thick is this little mile? That's this little dark ring around here, which helps these signals conduct faster. 
um, is there a spatial pattern to where these different sized nerve fibers are clustered? Um, all of that is a challenging problem that if we were to try to do it manually, there's 100,000 axons in here, believe it or not. No, there's a lot of small ones in between you can't see. It's, it's nearly an impossible task. And if you were to try to want to, want to characterize like, well, how similar is this across, you know, different subjects, you know, it, it would, it, you know, 100 years from now, maybe we'd be starting to get to the answer. And so machine learning, um, you know, deep learning in particular, you know, so deep learning algorithms can be trained to segment these images. They can be trained to kind of think like a human, thinking and, um, you know, how would a human do this? They can kind of tra be trained to do that and then recognize these features in the image that a human would look for. And then they do this once well-trained in theory in a matter of, you know, seconds to minutes. Whereas if for a human, it takes, um, well, a long time, let's put it that way. Um, and so that's where one aspect comes in. The other is that in the pattern of communication. So yeah, I call these messengers. They really are messengers. They don't do anything but relay information between the brain and the, and the body. And so they're communicating some message. They might not, you know, it might not be that obvious, you know, because it's not like speech, but you kind of think of it like human speech. You can think of these little axons, they are, they are connected to their own little cell body. You can think of them as messengers because they relay a message from the brain to the body or from the body to the brain. And each one has its own unique identity um, or size and shape. And it goes to one particular part of an organ or body and it, you know, it, it helps regulate one particular function. So the other aspect of it is we, you know, we need to learn which ones of these regulate which function so that if we know where they are, we can go in with electrodes and um, uh, other algorithms, which I'll explain shortly, to decide how do we best stimulate or how do we best deliver electrical energy? How do we best shock this nerve so that we only shock these messengers, you know, into action and not all the other messengers that might produce all off-target effects. And um, so, you know, so in essence, so we have messengers, they relay messages, and the message themselves is composed of this little train or sequence of impulses. And so when you look at, you know, so you can think of it, the messengers carrying a melody, and that melody is the other thing we want to learn. We want to understand how does the brain normally message these, send these messages, what do those messages look like? And that's the more complex thing that we're working on now where we're trying to use natural language processing to help decipher this neural code in the autonomic nervous system so that we can better understand um, how to stimulate the nerve, which nerve fibers to stimulate, and um, how to identify things like um, when, when we're getting on-target effects, which is basically have you elicited the function that you're trying to elicit, and how do you identify off-target effects, meaning have you successfully discommunicated the message with the intended recipient, or have you sent this message to you know, the heart or some other organ that you didn't want to uh, receive the message? Yeah, that's crazy. How, how big is this this image that we're looking at? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, I can't really pull out a hair, but um, it, like, is it the how thickness based on like a versus like a hair comparative? Um, so this whole thing from end to end here is probably about three millimeters across. Okay, okay. pretty small. Um, but to give you an idea, like the smallest axons um, will go down to about 0.1 micrometers. In a human hair, I think, is, you know, on average, like about 100 micrometers. So that's yeah. um, about, what, 100,000 full times, 1,000 times smaller than a hair. But uh, I think hairs can also be really thin, like 25 microns. But either way, they're much smaller than human hair, and they can get up to about 22 micrometers, which is about the thickness probably of a thin hair. Um, 
oops, I'm so sorry. Um, so they, yeah, so they're very, very small. And um, so the goal is, you know, to be able to interface with an individual cell. But uh, from my perspective, I think that goal is, you know, 10 to 20 years out. And I think we can do better now to give people who need treatment today better treatment. And we can also learn from them as they're getting their treatment. Um, because of the connectivity we have with our smartphones, because of the ability to be access and mine big data. Um, uh, Conduct uh, with, with the smartphone. And so are you, do you have like a sensor that's reading that, the nerve that? Yes, yeah, so that's the, um, and that's where a whole other side of engineering. So a whole other other set of people that I work with who are very good with this miniaturized electronics and neural interfaces. Um, yeah, we're trying to essentially, yeah, we have sensors, we have, stimulator, you know, stimulating electrodes, call them actuators. And um, yeah, these sensors can be wireless or they can be wired to a device. And um, either way, they can communicate to the outside world through Bluetooth or through some other technologies that are in development. And, um, and the idea, so this hasn't been implemented yet, but one of the big things we're working on is to be able to get all this information out onto a smartphone and you can do all kinds of complicated processing on a smartphone. It's a very powerful computer. And you can just relay a simple command back to the stimulator to, you know, say, you know, modify your, your the way you're stimulating this nerve, or, you know, keep going as is. Um, does that help? Does that answer that question? Well, yeah, it it seems a little on the sci-fi, but yeah, it does. Yeah. Now you said uh, earlier that so you had mentioned this is sort of, I mean, this is going towards like a drug-free, right? That we're you're going to more um, like nerve stimulation to try to to alleviate. Pain? Yeah, to alleviate pain um, is, you know, one big goal. We're also, you know, it can actually even modulate things like inflammation. So if you have uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, there's a big sub-discipline in this field that's really focused on stimulating the same nerve, the vagus nerve, mm -hmm. to help regulate inflammation um, and help regulate, you know, autoimmunity. And um, you had, sorry? Oh, no. Well, I was just going to say, you had mentioned that, um, like right now, drug options that there are, did you say about their drug options can be about 50% effective for people or? or? Um, well, with opiates, I think when they first take them, they're probably more like 100% effective, but the problem is they're so effective that people don't wanna start taking them. <laughs> and then there's obviously other processes that go on. With uh, neurostimulators, yeah, so with the, what we call open loop spinal cord stimulators, they just kind of stick a device in, put it kind of in the region where it needs to be and they kind of crank up the current and leave it, those ones are about 50% effective in 50% of patients, meaning that half the patients see their pain scores or intensity go down by about 50%. Um, there are now, there's a closed loop um, spinal cord stimulator that's being developed by a company called Saluda Medical in Australia right now. And they're, they're showing by just, by closed loop, meaning that, closed loop meaning that they're actually measuring the signal from a nerve and feeding that back to the stimulator and trying to regulate these you know, the signal from this nerve, kind of like a thermostat in your house would regulate the temperature in your house. Just by doing that, closing that loop for spinal cord stimulators, they're showing like, I think about somewhere around a 90% efficacy rate, um, which means that in, um, you know, 90% of the people who had used it after six months still report a 50% or greater reduction in pain relative to before they're stimulating. So, um, um, so yeah, so it could be, it can go all over the place, but I guess the point there is that by paying attention to what you're stimulating mm -hmm. and making sure you're just stimulating that you can get much better efficacy that is much more much com more comparable to what you would expect from you know a well-designed drug and then with the machine learning applying that and and you said within you, you know maybe a couple of decades you would expect this to then become much greater right like like 
like a much greater relief for patients? Yeah, so that, that's, that's the vision and um, that's the expectation. I expect that for these implantable therapies, we can get really close to the cells. I expect that they would be, you know, they're much more predictable and much more effective because they'll be individualized to the person. So they will, you know, we've identified basically where the pathways, what those cells look like. But beyond that, it's also being, you know, you can also use machine learning to understand what is their perception of the treatment? Oh. Are there particular symptoms that seem to be bothersome at, at one point in time? And, and through continuous, you know, learning or continuous data collection and incorporation into these algorithms, it may be possible to learn how to, you know, just more specifically tune that stimulus or the stimulus waveform for that patient so that it helps, you know, further uh, meet their expectations for treatment. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I know it's a, a long, it's trying to wrap my mind around all this. This is, it's kind of amazing uh, what you're working at. Well, more than kind of, it is straight up amazing what you're working on. I mean, uh, we have readers that we plug into our car computers to tell us what's wrong with the car. And I'm, I'm seeing eventually you having a reader and it's like, yeah, we're gonna plug this into the nerve. Oh, these fibers aren't firing right. We just need to fix that, refire those and, and fix people. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, that's the dream. And I think um, we have all this, you know, power, you know, at our disposal now, we have, you know, connected healthcare, we have, you know, high performance computers around us, we have, you know, big data around us. And, you know, why can't we leverage more of this information, you know, today? And um, why can't we use this, you know, power of these smartphones and these connected sensors to basically collect data and learn from people who are getting treatment today so that we can help inform these better treatments of the future. Um, and so the one I just described is the one that I think, you know, I, I, it's my vision and, you know, my goal is to see that become a reality. And, um, I think we're certainly, you know, well on track to getting there, but it, it's going to take time for that, you know, true sci-fi looking um, device to come out. But um. Well, Dr. Ward starts the board race. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, this is amazing. That, I mean, that's crazy to think that, it, that you're trying to map out and be able to read what individual fibers within a one a single nerve, where they go and what they're doing. And uh, the fact that you, you, if I understood right, it, it's almost like the, the you know, I'm thinking like uh, almost Morse code or whatever code it, need, it, it needs, like a certain pattern, it can be different too. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly right. Like the, the neural code is kind of a common thing that people might refer to when they talk about this. And, and yet it's just this, this pattern that we, um, you know, patterns that we believe to be there, but that are just too difficult to isolate and measure because you know, you're sitting in a sea of 100,000 different axons and maybe only in a couple of them are talking at one time. And to be able to understand when they're talking and when something's happening way, you know, downstream at, you know, an organ level, to be able to connect those different time scales and spatial scales is just mind-bogglingly complex. And so that's where we really need, um, you know, to rethink about, you know, rethink about how we can actually do that. But that, the, the actual goal, yeah, is to decipher and use that neural code to get, you know, highly predictable, highly precise treatments in each individual patient. But that's not to say we don't, we, we need that pattern to give treatment today. We can still stimulate in these kind of fixed patterns like we're doing and get really, really meaningful treatment. And in fact, that um, spinal cord stimulator from Australia that I've mentioned still uses this kind of fixed pattern stimulation. Um, and it's still going to be very, very effective. Um, we just believe that for this to be most effective, it's going to have to be stimulating and basically replicating essentially what the normal communication patterns would have been between the brain and the body and vice versa. 
um, because the body doesn't speak the language, you know, language that we designed for, it speaks the language that it speaks already. And so we can try to better mimic what it would normally do and we should get better results. Okay. And so is what you're doing now more of a, like a, I don't know, I want to say like a shotgun approach where you're having us to a large, hitting a large area and you're working on that, that laser pointer approach where you have that very fine tuned thing. Is that kind of where we're narrowing it down to? Um, yeah, it kind of started a shotgun approach and we just did crudely and, um, I can kind of skip forward here a little bit. Um, we kind of, you know, basically went to a different approach and said, okay, so we have these sensors. We know they're, they're, they can be used in the clinic. And um, again, my goal is to get, you know, impact on the short term and then also use that impact to help learn how to, we can design better devices in the future. But, you know, so, but we basically, we started with, you know, a very coarse crude approach to say, okay, well, let's do it exactly how everybody's doing this simulation now. And if I want to stimulate the vagus and treat the stomach, that's really the organ of interest right now and the center focus for my, um, my lab. Um, you know, we want to understand where can we stimulate and what are the types of effects we can elicit. And there's a lot of constraints that come on that, but basically it, it turns out you can only deliver a certain amount of energy through these electrodes that we use to stimulate the nerve with. And um, if we use the most basic ones that I use right now, which really are just like cuffs that wrap around the nerve or these little pads that sit on top of a nerve, um, yeah, you're going to get some proportion of all of the nerve fibers. And, you know, the question is when we just do that this way within the range of currents that we can stimulate with, so there's only a certain amount of energy we can put safely through those electrodes. If we just do that and randomly search this, what we call parameter space, what are the effects that we observe at all the, peer, the, all the points in the body that we care about and all the ones we maybe don't want to modulate? Um, so this is something that we developed, and this is called a grid search approach. It's kind of like if you're trying to find, you know, a missing person, you would go in a field, you'd create a grid, and you'd have a bunch of people search each point and find that person. And this is precisely what we did. And we actually found that there was, it, it's remarkably effective because this says, here's what we can control. Let's control it and let's observe what the physiology does. And it showed that, in fact, interestingly, that, you know, it, there, it showed that we, there might be control. And actually, it showed that the vast majority of these stimulus parameters that people aren't really paying attention to don't matter and only a so small subset of them with this you know goldilocks zone is matter for let's say the stomach and then we found that within that we can you know look mine a little bit further and say okay well when this when this happened here another layer of this map is what happened to the heart another layer is what happened to the, the lungs and so if we wanted to get what's happened to the stomach here this is making the stomach excited but we don't want to affect the heart you know, can we further narrow down this range of parameters and get closer to simulating, you know, just the stomach with these existing electrode arrays that we have. And so this is kind of one of the approaches that we're using. And we also are looking at micro stimulation. So we're taking, making these electrodes much, much smaller and we're using silica cuff, but we have these electrodes sitting around the nerve and they're a little small, much smaller. And because they're smaller, they, that means they're going to probably excite fewer axons with each stimulus. Um, and we're doing that as well. We're using that to understand um, you know, how the organization of the nerve that I showed you on um, the previous slide um, um, and basically how, how that can inform the electrode design and then whether having an electrode designed specifically to stimulate, you know, some of those uh, nerve fibers that sit around the periphery and give you more specific control over um, functions of the stomach, um, for example. So when you say stomach, what is there, I'm thinking like, um, different like stomach diseases that we're trying to, or what's the, the big picture of what you're really, you're looking at go to? Yeah. And um, that's a great question. And this ties into that. Why I showed the opiate thing at the beginning is, you know, a lot of, a lot of people with stomach issues, um, 
also have pain in their stomach, right? So they have visceral, they're called visceral pain. And, you know, they come back and back to the clinic and there's not much the doctors can do. And they initially start with opiates, but when they're on opiates for a long enough time, that causes stomach issues in itself. And you cause essentially these motility disorders, which means your stomach doesn't empty properly, doesn't process food properly. And um, uh, some, in some extreme cases that you can get something called gastroparesis. And gastroparesis is like stomach paralysis. It just gives up basically. And it, and, and this is, and that's, you know, obvious can cause that, but it can come from a number of other causes. Um, it's really tied, tied to diabetes and other, and um, there's also a large proportion of people that get it for unknown causes. But so, but this particular um, disease, stomach paralysis is literally where the stomach just doesn't process food. It doesn't churn food like it should. It doesn't propel food into the small intestines as it should. And because of that, these people start to develop these symptoms of nausea and vomiting and um, pain and um, essentially every time they start eating they eat in the worst cases they get nauseous and they vomit and there is no effective long-term drug treatment for these patients um, so the one i believe uh, reglan is the one that they can use but they can only use it for about 12 weeks at a time because it has very severe side effects you know cardiac side effects and one of them can cause a condition called tardive dyskinesia which is a Parkinson's like syndrome. So basically, you know, if you can imagine, you know, this space population, there's, um, uh, you know, there's really no viable drug treatment for them. There doesn't seem to be anything good in the pipeline, although I might be biased because I'm, you know, I like neuromodulation. And so, you know, it, because the vagus nerve, that nerve I showed you, regulates stomach functions, it's the primary nerve supply to the stomach. You know, we think, can we use that to basically recover some of the lost function of the stomach in these gastroparesic patients, or at the very least, can we stimulate the, the sensory, so the, the signals that the stomach was sent up to the brain that says, you know, nausea, you know, or, you know, I need to vomit. Can we basically intercept those or modulate those somehow so the patient doesn't perceive the nausea as much as they used to and so that their quality of life can return a little bit better. And um, in fact, we have a, a couple of ongoing clinical studies at high school medicine with the gastroparetic patient population where we've, um, we're st we've been studying with the similar approach that I described here, these patients who receive um, a neurostimulation therapy called gastric electrical stimulation, where part of the stomach is stimulated um, to help treat nausea and vomiting that doesn't respond to any kind of other treatment like drug treatments or dietary changes. And we found out there that through this process that one, we've developed a way to, through the skin surface, record signals from the vagus nerve that are listed each time that stimulator is activated. And we've um, paired that with symptom scores. And we found that in fact, there's a certain type of nerve response that when it's present in these subjects, they actually have significantly better response than people who don't have this nerve response. So this is an example of us finding the nerve response. And what we want to do is we want to be able to reprogram those stimulators so that we can produce this nerve response that we see to observe to be effective or associated with effective therapy in the subset of patients to see if people who don't respond right now can get better therapy there as well, just in terms of symptom mediation. Um, that one's an ongoing study, but that's kind of an example of how these things kind of come together and how we're, um, I guess, translating some of the methods that we've, you know, first developed in animal models and doing it in a very safe um, way in humans where we're actually not modifying the treatment program. We're just studying and then observing them. Mm -hmm. And once we have enough information, you know, to, you know, make us confident that, you know, that a certain change in stimulus parameters or a certain change in approach might make them better, then we can go on and justify testing these newer, um, types of approaches where we're still stimulating the stomach, but we're stimulating in the way now that we're trying to engage the nerve in a particular way that we believe will lead to um, 
better treatment outcomes, lower nausea, lower vomiting, and lower pain. Right, cool. Very cool. Well, thank you. The, I, this is amazing. It's kind of, well, I did not realize that, that it was at that level of understanding. Uh, it, that's, I'm still just thinking acupuncture, but. Uh, <laughs> acupuncture can be very effective. <laughs> and uh, but you're, uh, you're definitely going um, very, uh, a lot higher than what I had thought personally that I, that I understood as we were going with the technology and under being able to map out something like a nerve. This is really, really cool. Thank you. Thank you. We yeah, I, and I, we've just barely scratched the surface, but I can't say the next five to 10 years will be a revolution in this area and in an understanding of the nervous system because of our, our own government's you know, interest in answering some of these questions. So we're very you know, grateful. Um, uh, it it sounds like a good uh, career path for students to consider then. Absolutely. Absolutely. They need both uh, the, what the, what would they need real fast? I, I guess I, I, I know they're going to be curious. So let's throw it out. What would they need to go into this career background wise? Um, well, an engineering degree would be key. So uh, the most common ones we see, you know, are materials engineering, um, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, um, but biomedical engineering, that's what my training was. And that's, that would be the most focused one if you wanted to go start in this area. Um, but you all, no matter what you do, you want to get biology experience as an undergraduate and you want to get some research experience as an undergraduate because that's going to get you into a competitive graduate school and that's where you really learn you know the art of the trade and that's where um you take some courses but you really learn it from hands-on experience and through research and um interactions with colleagues in different disciplines that are trying to solve the same problem um, it's highly interdisciplinary in nature and i i I would, um, you know, really suggest that students who are out there who are interested in this, especially the data side of it, would, you know, start looking into data science in particular as a discipline. It's really emerging and it's, it's, it encompasses everything we have here, all machine learning techniques, you know, big data, you know, mining. Um, that, along with some biology background, I think would set you up for a really great career in the information side of this. Um, if you want to develop the devices, then you, you know, maybe you want to get the electrical engineering degree. Um, or if you want to modulate pharmacology, maybe you want to do chemical engineering. Um, there's just a million paths and I encourage them to reach out to, um, you know, our biomedical engineering department at Purdue. If they're interested, they, they have a lot of suggested career paths, a lot of suggested plans of study that they might be able to recommend for students who are interested. That is, that is just, that's awesome to know. I think just a neat idea for future careers that you might not just naturally think of. This is just a really cool, cool to know. I certainly think it is, but yeah, we'd love to see that. <laughs> I'm glad you think it's cool since you're doing it. <laughs> and it's, it's, wow, it's just, this blows my mind. Yeah.